Good morning. Morning. Um, We are doing today lesson number three in our quarterly, uh, The Teachings of Jesus. And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will be here to join us today, that uh, we will uh, have our minds enlightened, transformed to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Um, Anybody need a, a new quarter? Anybody not have one? We've got an extra here. All right, pass that one on back, will you? Thanks. From our Facebook page, somebody posted last week, I just wanted to let Dr. Jennings and the class know how the Come and Reason Ministries has blessed us here in Japan. I am an elder in my church and have the opportunity to preach at the he- on the Healing Substitution Viewpoint, which has been very well received. Unbeknownst to me, tapes and CDs of the sermons go out to people and churches in our area. And I was just asked today to speak at another church about the-, the Viewpoint, my first invitation to speak outside my home church. Praise God. It takes me way outside my comfort zone, but I am claiming God's promise that he will always be with me and give me the words to speak. Although my Japanese isn't great, God always gets my message, excuse me, God always gets his message across uh, to the people who need it most. May his second coming be soon. I ask for your continued prayers for his message here in Japan. Japan is one of the areas in the world where the preaching and teaching of the eternal gospel is creeping along at a snail's pace. Love and peace to all. And then this was an email that came in. When I ordered some of your DVDs in February, you sent some other materials as well, and I want to thank you so very much. I have read and looked at all the materials and have shared them with many people, but still have more people to share with, so I'm requesting another box of whatever you can send me. I also bought Brad Cole's book, Servant God, and have given away 12 of those. We have listened to most of your Bible study classes from the last three years, some two to three times, as well as the Good News Tours, and have been so blessed. We are sharing with everyone we can. I gave a friend in College Pace, Washington, God on Your Brain DVD while we were visiting up there, and she has already ordered more from you and giving them out. We have found some people who are very excited about this material, and some haven't taken the time to listen yet. We, ju- we just keep asking the Lord not to let the DVDs be forgotten, but used for his glory. So far, we have not had any negative feedback. Thank you again for the material, and may God continue to bless each one of you in your ministry. And then one more short one. I have just had the privilege, this is where I was last week, and this came in uh, this week. I just had the privilege of hearing Dr. Tim Jennings at Lakeport, California, and it has changed the way I view God. I would like to order the DVDs to give to my friends. So, really positive feedback. And, and when I was at Lakeport last week, really positive response from the church out there. Overwhelmingly positive. And they had a large number, like 8, 10 or so, uh, non-Adventist pastors that were there from the local churches that also really appreciated and responded positively to the presentation. And then I received an email from Livius Shebelu, who took particular note of the picture. It was the end of last quarter, lesson 13, and you know, they're a couple weeks behind us, so that's why it's coming in a couple weeks later. And the picture at the end of last quarter in lesson 13, at the beginning, and the title of the lesson was Christ's Kingdom and the Law. And this little picture at top, I'm going to pass around something you can see. But he said when he saw the picture, you notice the, com- the commandments here in the picture. He said it reminded him of another picture. And the other picture was uh, designed by James White in 1876. The picture was supposed to be the plan of salvation from the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem. And in this picture, the law tree dominated the picture. And there's ten branches for the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are hanging under it. And you see the cross of Christ is here, but it's under the law. And this is how the early Advent people presented the gospel. Uh, And this picture kind of sums it up. 
And it was in 1880, 1881, that James and Ella White reevaluated the presentation and came up with a new lithograph that they produced. And uh, James finished it in 1881, and then he died shortly thereafter. And Ellen White had it produced in 1883. And in this picture, this is the new one, you notice Christ is foremost and central, and the law has actually been removed from the picture. It's not in the picture anywhere. Isn't that interesting? So I want to thank Livius for sending that in for us to uh, look at. And the pictures are also in the notes. All right, uh, the lesson title today is The Holy Spirit, Lesson 3. And the memory text is, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. What does the word another mean? In addition to. In addition to, exactly. This is important. Uh, In other words, another, different than myself, and different than my father. Notice, I will pray the father, and he will give you another helper, meaning someone different than the father. It won't be the father, and it won't be me. Do you understand the importance of this? There's an attack in the church on the Trinity and on the Holy Spirit. And Christ, if Christ were actually, and some are saying, well, there is no actual individuality Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just God's eternal presence, the Father, and it's his spirit that is coming. You've heard this argument? Okay. If that were true, why didn't Christ then say, "Um, I'm going to pray the Father and he will come to you in spirit and help you? He didn't say that. I think Christ was precise in what he said. I will pray the Father and he will send another helper to you. Yeah, we're going to come to that. It's huge. That's huge. It's a huge point. Um, Why do you think there is such an attack against the Trinity and the Holy Spirit? Why? What's the function of the Holy Spirit? Yes. It's like the glue that holds the character of God together. I I like that. I like where you're going with that. Yeah, Wendell. Conviction of sin and bringing of truth. Conviction is in the bringing of truth. So if you look in Friday's lesson, the function of the Holy Spirit, look in Friday's lesson. I'm going to read the quote that's in Friday's lesson, which they quote out of the Desire of Ages, page 761, excuse me, 671. But I'm going to include, I think, two sentences they didn't include. But notice what's in the, in the lesson. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his Father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent and without the sacri- excuse, and without this, Without what? The Holy Spirit. The sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. I'm going to pause there. I'm going to read the rest of the paragraph in a second, but just pause there. Think through the meaning of that, if you believe that's true. Without the the power of the Holy Spirit, the sacrifice of Christ would have been no avail. Why? I mean, if our problem is a legal problem, if we need to get our debt paid, if it's a perfect blood sacrifice of an innocent victim that has to be in a in our legal position and, and be executed and, and so forth and so on, why can't all of that happen without the Holy Spirit, you see? Because that's not the problem. We were never in legal trouble. It was never a legal payment. It was always about regeneration, healing, transformation, recreation. What Christ accomplished, the Holy Spirit takes and reproduces actually in the believer. So we'll keep reading. It also eliminates the uh, moral influence argument. If we just needed the moral influence of Christ's character and Christ's sacrifice, then the Holy Spirit wouldn't have been needed. The Holy Spirit was needed to apply it to our lives and and heal us. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. So keep going. It says, The the power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to the satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person, 
of the Godhead who would come with no modified energy but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, the believer becomes partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his spirit as divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. Yeah. Yes. Don't you think that the Holy Spirit keeps Satan from searing our conscience completely? You know something? That's a great question. And hopefully we'll get to the part in the lesson we talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about what happens to the conscience and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay, it's a good question. Um, so do you agree with this position that the Holy Spirit makes effectual in the life of the believer what, what Jesus has wrought out? And do you notice, as I pointed out, this is not a legal problem. It's actual transformational, regenerational. So if you were Satan... Pardon? The only thing that allows us to have victory... Yes. Yes, exactly. She said it's so true. The only thing that gives us real victory is the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. So then, if you were Satan, would you want people to acknowledge and receive the Holy Spirit? So do you see why this attack against the Trinity? To diminish and undermine the belief in the Holy Spirit and desire to receive the Holy Spirit. And then the infection... There's two, so there's two sides of this. One, the attack against the Trinity undermines the Holy Spirit. And if there's no Holy Spirit, then we don't receive the Spirit. We don't make effectual in our lives the transforming power what Christ has achieved. On the other side is the whole legal presentation, because what happens there? What do we need for that? Well, in the legal presentation, we need our sins pardoned. We need our debt paid. We need our sins covered. We need to be hidden by the robe of righteousness so Christ can't see us. But we're not actually needing transformation. We're delivered from the punishment of sin not from the power of sin until glorification typically is taught there. But what, what, what the scriptures teach is that for the believer, we get a new heart and right spirit. We have the law written on the heart and mind. We're reborn, recreated. We get the mind of Christ. We, the old is gone. The new has come. We live different lives. And it's real. But it's not real for people who believe lies because lies disrupt the power of the spirit of truth. Exactly right. Now, in the um, third paragraph, it says, Another reason arises from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is constantly trying to focus our attention on Christ, not on his own person. In the plan of salvation, the Spirit plays a subordinate, subordinated role serving the Father and the Son, although this function does not imply inferiority in essence. First off, I just want to say, absolutely, the Spirit is focusing on our, our attention on Christ and what Christ has accomplished. No question about it. But what do you think about the choice, the word choice here? Subordinated. When you you think of a subordinate, immediately what kind of a system are you in? Hierarchical system. And I'm going to tell you these word choices reveal, again, the imperial construct that infects the minds of much of Christianity, that God's system is like a Roman system and people take hierarchical roles and they take subordinate roles. So they're saying because the Holy Spirit serves the Father and the Son, that he's subordinated to them. Not inferior, but subordinated. Well, let's see about that. Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve, Mark 10.45. Does that mean he's subordinate to us? 
because he serves. Are you all comfortable with that? Jesus is our subordinate. If you use their logic, then we have to conclude that because he's serving us. What's the problem with their logic? They have accepted a false construct for the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God operates like human kingdoms on a hierarchical structure. But Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. And in in God's kingdom, it says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So look at how this functions in this paragraph, Philippians 2, 6 through 9. Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. How do you achieve greatness in the kingdom of God? By being the greatest in love. It's the greatest in love. Isn't that what it is? So I I prefer to avoid these um, hierarchical designations among the Trinity. I, I prefer to avoid that. And instead think of different roles. By choice, not by rank. By choice, not by rank. Authoritarian distortions of God like to organize things by rank. Not so with God. Think about it. Why is Christ elevated above all others? Because of rank? Because of title? Because of inherited position? Or because of the truth of the character that he revealed? The selfless love demonstrated in his life and death as a human on earth. And what he accomplished in that life. See, Christ gave the most. Now, all three members of the Godhead are equal in character, equal in love, equal in grace. But Christ was the one who actually carried out in function, in action, the reality and lived out that love self-sacrificially. He's the one who, who accomplished that love fully. That's so, so if you follow what I'm saying, that's what exalts him. Was the, the the exaltation of love acted out? Isn't that always been the function of Jesus to be the interface between the creation and the Creator, with, between He and the angels before we ever came along? The Bible says that He was the Word of God, and through the Word of God, everything that was made was made. So, so, so the chosen roles, as I understand them currently, and, and of course, my finite mind can't understand it completely. So it's just a, a very dim view of what it probably really is like, but the Father acts as the source of all that is good. The Son is the medium, mediator, advocate, conduit, agent through which the Father reveals himself or acts, and the Holy Spirit is the actualizer or the applier of what the Father and Son have achieved. Thus, God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself, and the Spirit came upon Jesus to enable him to do so. Jesus' worked on earth, work on earth was acting out the Father's heart, His completed mission and victory over sin is applied in the life of the believers by the work of the Holy Spirit. In creation, we have the Father as the source, the Son as the architect, designer, and builder, and the Spirit as the actualizer or implementer of their design. And there's scripture for all of this. For instance, Proverbs 8.30, talking about the Father and the Son. The Son, I was was the craftsman at his side. I I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in the whole world, and delighting in mankind. So we see this. So I, I see it this way, but not as I, as I give them these different functional roles that they've chosen. That's not a hierarchical, subordinate relationship. 
And I think it's important we think this way because in the church, in the church is it to be a hierarchical organization? Is the church to be a dictatorship? Or we are priesthood of believers and there is to be, according to the scripture, who is to be the head of the church? Christ. Not the president of the general conference? Interesting. Yes, it's, Christ is to be the head of the church. That's exactly right. So we also understand with this kind of view why Christ said, I do nothing of myself. Because he derives from the Father and is empowered by the Spirit to carry out the tasks assigned. Here's another quote, historical quote, regarding the Trinity. It's found in um, Evangelism 6.15. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their effort to live the new life in Christ. I just think it's important to confirm the, the Trinity, because if we undermine that, we undermine God's character of love. Because love cannot operate, as we understand it, functionally. The principle of giving, the principle of beneficence, requires an object to sacrifice self for. And if we take the Trinity away, then sometime in the university past, uh, eternity past, there was a time when God was a singularity. He wasn't functional love. Yes? Well, in a sense, they are singularity because they are of one mind. Um, I don't understand it that way. I understand them one in character, but have three separate individualities and personalities. Yes, they do. They know what the other ones are thinking. But Yes, but that doesn't mean they don't have their own separate individualities and minds. Just because they have perfect... Unity. Telepathy. No, I, that's not what I meant. I meant they were in perfect agreement. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, sure. Sunday's lesson. First paragraph says, With fear and sadness, the disciples listened as Jesus announced his imminent death. When they, uh, when they were deprived of his presence, who would be their teacher, friend, or counselor? Knowing their desperate need, Christ promised to send them his representative to be with them. And this is what Laurie was getting to a moment ago, that it was, he said to them, it was beneficial that I leave. Why was it a good thing for the disciples that Jesus left physically? And good for us today that he's not here physically yet. Why is that good? Focus. Expand. He says, focus. If we were focused on his physical presence, then any time we were away from him, we had lost his presence with us. Even though we did not leave, because the Holy Spirit would still be with us, is so much on what we see. So one aspect is that aspect of we can walk with God everywhere right now, but if we were focused on his physical presence, if we're separated with him, we focus on our distance from him, not our unity with him. So it sends a mental perspective shift. Okay, yes? It also required the disciples to delve in and work out and explore some of these things for themselves. You know, from a personal example, I can sit here and listen to you teach the lesson, but when I have to prepare for a lesson myself and teach it myself, <laughs> it becomes much more real, it becomes much more integrated, it becomes... Um, a part of me. Yeah, I like where you're going with this, but I just want to throw out one other thought before we expand on that. And that is, um, imagine if Christ were alive walking on the earth today. How many holy relics would we have? Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, 
his McDonald's cup as he, you know, had his orange juice, okay? And he sets it down. People are going to want to take that home and put it in a little shrine. I mean, you think this is what happened? You think of the superstitions that would arise. Broken grass he walked on. I mean, think of the superstitions. I mean, even with the apostles, they, if, if I read the New Testament correctly, they took handkerchiefs or things like that that the apostles had blessed to people and they were healed by it. You think there would be like this magical thinking starting to create if Jesus were still physically. Would that then result in what Russell was suggesting and what the New Testament says that every person is to be fully persuaded in their mind, in your own mind at Romans 14, 5 or Hebrews 5, 14, um, that the mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right and wrong. Would we be growing and advancing in our own mental capacities, our own character development, if we simply are following around, waiting to be told what to do. So functionally, how is the work of the Holy Spirit different than the work of Jesus? Do they have, do they have different work? Do they do, do they do different work? They, they do. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the advocator, so to speak, the medium through which... Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and give it to you. So he's saying that the Holy Spirit is the, the medium through which... So, 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 so first then, you're, I agree with you. So Jesus' work was to... To create the cure. Okay. So he was, and, he, and Jesus' work was carried out in humanity. By the exercise of a human brain that he took upon himself. And he fought a battle that we could not ourselves fight. And he revealed truth about God. He exposed Satan as a liar. He lived and developed a perfect character. So it says in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who will obey him. So he is actually re, you know, developing, rotting, rot this out, so to speak, in, um, in human flesh. But the Holy Spirit, what's the Holy Spirit do? Applies it. Okay. So the Holy Spirit takes all that Christ achieved, worked out, accomplished, produced but how? Holy Spirit, Wendell said earlier, convicts of sin, the spirit of truth. So how does the Holy Spirit accomplish this goal of applying it in your life, in my life? Is it something magical? You go to the proper ceremony, get your foot washed on the proper week of the month, uh, eat, the, you know, eat the bread or the drink the wine. I mean, you do something like this, and then as you do it, something magical happens. Is that what happens? Yes. Christ said, he will bring to mind what I've told you before. The Holy Spirit will bring to mind. So what's, what's that describing? Enlightenment, understanding, comprehension. Um, yeah, memory, um, thinking, reasoning. Does that require some work on your part? Yes. yes. Some effort, some cooperation with the Spirit, some willingness to engage. Yeah. This is not something magic, like you just take a, you know, take some you know, magic potion and boom, it's done. Is there a hand in the back? Yes. I like to think of it as empowering us. Oh, I like that too. Empower. So yes, as I understand, the, the, I've thought about this quite a few times. It seems like the Holy Spirit does several different things. One, the Holy Spirit enlightens our mind with truth that we, in ways that we can comprehend. And, and we are approached all in different ways because we comprehend differently. But the Holy Spirit approaches in ways we can comprehend, convicts us not only of sin, but also of duty. Have you ever had a conviction of duty, of responsibility, an action you needed to take? Which is not the same thing as a conviction to repent. It does both, convicts of duty and sin, and then leaves us free to decide whether we'll 
accept the truth and embrace it, repent of the sin if we're convicted of it, fulfill the duty that we're called to fulfill. He leaves us free, doesn't he? And that's very important. Focus more on that. Most of Christianity it rejects that. And coercive force in God's government. And this is key because many people pray to the Spirit for power. I want to show you in the equation, in the system, in the method, where the power comes. When you choose to apply the truth, repent of the sin, uh, uh, fulfill your duty, then you get the power. You don't get the power until you choose to follow what the Spirit is leading you to do. Anybody disagree with that? And many people, particularly when they're struggling with something in their life, they pray for the power before they've actually chosen to follow the truth. Yes. Isn't that what, was it Simon that did that? Yes, he prayed for power. Yes, he did. Yeah. And, then, and then there was a huge rebuke right after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit works in cooperation with us to get us to think, to reason, to weigh the evidences, to conclude, and then decide and choose. And exercise, exercise our God-designed mental powers in harmony with the Spirit for our growth and development. It's one of the laws, we talk about laws in here a lot. We talk about design law, laws of gravity, law of love and liberty, we talk about a lot. But there's another one we don't mention quite so often. And it's the law of all growth comes from exertion or exercise. If you won't exercise, you won't grow. That's physical growth. That's relationship growth. If you don't spend time exercising love in a relationship, it won't grow. That's cognitive growth in any subject matter. If you want to be a subject matter expert, you've got to exercise your powers of thinking to study. That's spiritual growth. And so the Holy Spirit leads us into truth, but wants us to exercise the abilities God has given us in line with his leading. And in so doing, we are growing stronger, growing in grace in that process. If Jesus would have stayed physically on earth, not only would he have had some of these other things we said, but I suspect every time any question of any doctrine came up, people would run to him for the answer. Tell us, which way is it? And you think about this now. Think about being a math teacher. And you're teaching a group of students math. Is it best when they have a problem? Uh, when you list the problems, they've got 20 problems to work out. So we have 20 problems. Is the best teacher the one that comes along and writes down all the answers? Is that the best teacher? Here's the answers. That's the, is that the answer? Or is the best teacher the one that helps them understand how to work the problem? And then when they get it wrong, go back and see where the error was made, work it through, and give them more problems to work. So they ultimately come to understand and practice uh, the, you know, healthy mathematics in this case without having to be told the answer every time. This is what God wants us to, to, to come to in living in the universe that he's created, that we understand how it runs, and we've worked with him to understand and choose to live in harmony with it. Yes? This may be an elementary question, but some people say you either have the Holy Spirit or you don't, all or none. But often we pray, give me more of your spirit, fill my cup, you know. So which is it? Maybe you can help me understand. I think the Holy Spirit would be better viewed much more like sunshine. It's being poured out on the earth. Some people are blind and can't see the light. Other people are, have dim vision and can see a little bit. Other people have quite acute vision and can benefit from all the light that's being sh- shown. 
metaphorically speaking, the Holy Spirit, God, from God's side, he's pouring out as much spirit as he possibly can. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, remember the spirit is the spirit of truth and love. I have much to tell you, but you can't yet bear it. What's the restriction there? God's holding back. He's, 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 he's secretive. He doesn't want us to know stuff. Or we can't handle it. We're not yet ready. And so if he were to shine more light onto us, it would be overwhelming for us. And so the real difficulty is that uh, I don't think that you either have it or you don't. You're either walking with, cooperating with, or you're resisting. I would, I would say it that way. So would it be better to pray, help me to discern the Holy Spirit, or help me to, rather than to say, give me more of your spirit? Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to pray it. I, one of the ways I viewed the Holy Spirit and his function, and the different, and I, I kind of said this, but I'll say it again differently now. You, you all remember those uh, connect the dot books? You connect the dots, one, two, three, and you get a picture. You know, so one simplistic way of looking at the different roles is that Jesus is the member of the Godhead who interacts in history. He actually enters human history and does stuff. So he creates facts. He's, the, he's putting down dots in history. If you, the Holy Spirit comes along and enlightens your mind to connect the dots so you can see the picture. Okay? And so I, I remember praying a long time ago, Lord, help me connect the dots. Help me see how the picture fits so I get the right picture. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit, to enlighten your mind, get the right picture, and then as you trust him, to be a transformational agent, to also take the new heart motives of love and reproduce those new motives in you as well. So whichever way you need to pray it so that you can be a partaker of that experience, I think that would be okay. I don't think there's a set way to have to pray it. But it's the, you remember, it also says in, what, Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit, you know, intercedes with us with utterances and groans because we don't even often know half the time what we need to be praying. But if your heart's sincere, the Spirit knows that and brings to you what you need. Uh, over here, yes. Well, I was just thinking tonight, did the disciples have the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? You know, they prayed, and the Holy Spirit came, as Ellen White says in Acts of the Apostles, in more of a marked manner. Yes, let's talk about that for a minute. This is the first and the latter rain. This was the first rain coming. And what was it that enabled the first rain to come? Can anybody tell me, was there anything that happened that opened the avenue for the first rain to come? Oh, Jesus went to heaven and begged his father, and his father couldn't take the pleading so much, so he finally got tired and said, fine, here, take the spirit. Is that what happened? <laughs> yes, there you go. It wasn't a, a, a difficulty in heaven in pouring out the spirit. It was, there was no people united enough in love, they will know you are my disciples by your love. They'd finally put away their bickering. Who's going to be the greatest? Right up to the cross. On the way to, on the way to that final uh, upper room experience, they're going, drawn back, hiding behind Christ. He's, they, they, they distance themselves from him, and they're arguing. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? Remember? Well, at Pentecost, they weren't arguing who's going to be the greatest anymore. They'd finally surrendered. They'd come into unity. Their focus was Christ-central. They wanted to tell people about this amazing God who came to earth in our form, overcame where we couldn't come, gave his life for our salvation, and now is risen from the dead and is in heaven waiting to come back. They wanted to tell the world. They came into unity. And once they were united with the central message of God's character of love, then the Spirit empowered them. And this is what the Lord is waiting for today on earth, a group of people to be united on the central message of God's character of love, and the Spirit will fall again, and we will be empowered to take this message. They were all in one accord, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. So, 
Jesus does not want such infantile Christians who run to him and say, tell me what the answer is. He wants us to grow up to the full stature of Jesus Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to have the mind of Christ, to have the character of Christ, to have the heart that loves like Christ, to be friends who understand the master like Christ. Thus Christ went to heaven and sent the Spirit to lead us into all truth, to lead us to comprehend, to lead us to think and reason, to be fully persuaded in our own minds, to grow up and partake the spiritual meat and stop just taking the milk, and to know for ourselves his character, methods, principles, and choose the right because it's right. This is what he's wanting for us. Second paragraph, it says, Helper, Counselor, and Comforter are, are various translations of the Greek uh, parakletos, which means, uh, which is made up of the uh, uh, preposition para, beside, and the adjective kletos, called. It literally means one called to the side of, giving the idea of a person summoned to one's aid. It may refer to a mediator, an intercessor, a helper, an advisor, or a legal advocate. Notice the lesson mentions the idea of a legal advocate. And certainly, it is absolutely true, if you were in legal trouble, a legal advocate would be a helper and a counselor to you. But we are not in legal trouble. So this idea that the Holy Spirit being a legal advocate is really, in my view, a false view and leads people away from what the Holy Spirit's really trying to do. And what do we need the Holy Spirit to walk beside us to do for us? Why do we need it? What's the Holy Spirit working to do in us? To heal us. Physician's not in this list. Discernment, (laughs) conviction, calling, wooing, and transforming. I mean, this is what we need. Notice what the Holy Spirit's working to do is not a legal pardon, but an actual recreation and regeneration in us. It's a healing. That was a story yesterday. Um, Someone walking beside someone else because the person was not as excited as they needed to be to get around. Oh, I like that. So somebody's walk. He said somebody in the store had, had tr- trouble seeing. They were partially blind. And so they had somebody walking beside them to help them walk and not stumble. I think that's a great analogy of what the Holy Spirit's working for us to do. And then what happens? Will there come a day, if God has his way with us, that our spiritual vision will be restored and God wants to set us free to walk on our own in harmony with him? Yes, before his coming. Yes. <laughs> okay. So uh, as we think about the Holy Spirit doing this, what we talked about, helping us, helping us grow and so forth, as we think about this, what um, is the method and or tools or weapons that the Spirit uses to achieve this? So this is out of Desire of Ages 761. We read that paragraph earlier from the lesson on Friday's lesson. Here's the paragraph that precedes it in the text, one right before it. The comforter is called the Spirit of Truth. His work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the spirit of truth, and thus he becomes the comforter. There is comfort and peace in the truth, but no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character. Through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus he exposes error and expels it from the soul. It is by the spirit of truth working through the word of God that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. So any examples of how believing a falsehood misshapes the character, that's what the text said. So we should look. Is that really true? If it's true, we should be able to identify it. Any examples of accepting falsehood resulting in a misshapen character? Come on, guys. This is... Okay. We can go back to Cain. 
He kept it falsehood, and his character became that of a murderer. Ah, hear what she's saying over here? Dark ages where they decided that it was a legal issue, and if you didn't obey, you deserved to be tortured and tortured until you came to their way of thinking. And Consider for a moment, really, the character of someone who could burn another human being at the stake in the name of God and then give them the last rites and believe they're sending them to heaven. Because I love you. Seriously, is that a misshapen character? Yes. Terribly misshapen. It's ugly. And it went both sides. There's, there are, are, are memorials and, and monuments in Europe of where, where Protestants have killed Catholics, and those same monuments on the other side, you walk around the other side, where Catholics have killed Protestants. I mean, it's gone both directions. Because they, they have this warped view of an authoritarian dictator, and you must punish you know, breaches in, in the rules. What about believe? Yeah, that, so we said that. How, how does truth heal? How does truth set free? How does it comfort? Have you ever been in a position where you were believing something that was untrue and you were just agonizing over it and then you found the truth? Peace. Have you ever had that? I, am I the only one? And have you found peace? It is absolutely healing and restorative. It's peaceful. And it, on any subject matter, it doesn't have to be spiritual. If you believed that uh, at, your, at your company they'd done you know, uh, blood screening and, and the person comes back and lies to you and tells you that you're HIV positive, but you're not. If you believe you are, will you have peace? And then what, what does it do to you when you find the truth that you're not? Is that truth that you free and find peace? It's, it, it doesn't matter the subject matter. Truth is healing. Yes, Russell. It's not instantly peaceful. Not always. That's we need to, to clear that up because you and I both were raised under a different God concept, and we went through some, some, ag- some mental agonizing, reconciling, uh, getting that lie out of our systems. So it, it wasn't instantly peaceful. Yes, good point. Truth is healing. Right. So if you have a tumor in your lung, and you go to the MRI scanner and discover it, it's true, it's there. Does that bring peace? No, but what's the only chance of finding health? If you say, well, no, I don't believe it. There's nothing there. I'm fine. Does identifying reality, you know, going to the MRI scanner and finding it, does the MRI scanner put it there? No, the truth is what the truth is. So in our characters, finding defects of character may not be initially fun. But if you were lived in a society where every tumor that was ever found, always, if you partook the remedy available to you for free, always went away, would you be glad to find those tumors? You see, we're scared of finding tumors because we're afraid there's no cure. But when we talk about defects of character and, and what Christ has done for us, there's always a cure. 100% of the time. So why are we afraid to look? Because we have a false model that finding defects means we have more punishments lined up against us. I remember one fellow that uh, had an MI and, and, and he was being heart started and stopped, started and stopped, defibrillated several times, and he kept waking up in between the uh, defibrillations as, they were, as his heart was stopping. Started, he'd wake and he said he had one thought on his mind. He survived, obviously. And he told me this. I just kept thinking, I hope there's not one sin I forgot to confess that will keep me out of heaven. Does this man have peace? Is he living with a love relationship with Jesus Christ? He's living in a legal model of there's something I didn't get checked off on my checklist. It didn't get the proper uh, accounting mechanism in the accounting books of heaven. Uh, It's a horrible fear-based system when you live under an authoritarian dictator. And it's just a distortion. Yes. 
She says it applies relationally too. Because a lot of people live in denial because they don't feel like they can deal with the truth. But you can't heal and move on until you face the truth. So the truth may be painful, but there's no healing without facing it. Oh, this is such a great statement. In my practice all the time, I can't tell you the numbers of people that come to see me. And they're in relationships that are dysfunctional, damaging, harmful, abusive, exploitive. Um, they're with somebody who cheats, somebody who lies, somebody who manipulates, and they just don't want to accept it. And so the and, and you've heard terms like um, collusion or codependency or enabler or these types of things. And the person who's being victimized or mistreated will say things like, "Oh, he didn't mean it. Oh, he he, he was just short on sleep, or he had a bad day, or you know." And 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 they don't want to be truthful about what's being revealed in the character of the person they're with and deal with it honestly. And so it actually is very damaging to avoid the truth. You're exactly right. Well said. Uh, yes. You ask, you know, what does the Holy Spirit do? How do they do it? I mean, Jesus told that to Nicodemus when he says, "Unless you're born again," which would be open to God's way of doing things. You can't see the kingdom of God. You, the Holy Spirit's work. Well, I, 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 you said something. I got to interrupt. Is that okay? You, you get, will you give me permission? Well, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, he allows you to see the kingdom of God. Yeah, no, this is well said. Because you said without the Holy Spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God. But what did Jesus say about those people who crucified him? Remember in the, in the trial, he says, you will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of glory. And what's it say in Revelation about those who pierced him? That every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. Okay? So, on the one hand, he says, you can't see the kingdom of God without the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, we have these people, clearly not renewed by the Spirit, who, were, who said they're going to see Jesus coming in his glory. How do you reconcile those two? Because that's the reality. The reality is they're resurrected. They visually see him coming. I'm talking about seeing... The, what the Holy Spirit, you, you said, uh, Wendell said, you know, a person partially sighted being guided by the Holy Spirit. The whole role of the Holy Spirit is to improve your eyesight. Now, I'm going to suggest they still don't see the kingdom of God. They do not see the kingdom of God. What they see, remember what they also do, they run and beg for the mountains to hide them from the face of him. What they see is the lies they filled their mind with. He is a terrorizer. He's a dictator. He's coming to kill us. We, we're terrified. They're not seeing the kingdom of God. They're seeing, the, they're seeing him on, sitting at the throne. That's what Jesus said they would see. You would see me sitting at the throne. But they don't see God's kingdom because they're so entrenched into the lie. They see the false view of God when he comes again. So this is how you reconcile those two. Truly, you have to be renewed by the Spirit to see the kingdom of love, which is the kingdom of God. But they can see the physical manifestation, but it scares them and terrorizes them because they actually still don't see the kingdom. You all agree with that? Yeah. Let's keep rolling. Here's a a historical quote that I found. 1888 materials, page uh, 1017. We have need of divine illumination. God's transforming grace upon human hearts will lead to unity that has not yet been realized for all who are assimilated to Christ uh, will be in harmony with one another. The Holy Spirit will create unity. He shall glorify me. This is, the, this is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ is now sent. Question, how does the Holy Spirit glorify God? That was a quote from Jesus. He, the, talking about the Spirit. The Spirit comes, he will glorify me. So Jesus said, how does he glorify him? Here's this answer given here. See if you agree. The Holy Spirit glorifies God 
by so revealing his character to his people that he becomes the object of their supreme affection and by making manifest his character in them. They see clearly that there was never any righteousness in the world but his, no excellence in the world but that derived from him. When the Spirit was poured out from on high, the church was flooded with light, but Christ was the source of that light. His name was on every tongue. His love filled every heart. So it will be when the angel that comes down from heaven having great power shall lighten the whole earth with his glory. May the Lord help his people to see and understand what is truth. So how does the Spirit glorify Christ? It, there was a chapter in the Bible that gave him this lesson where it says the Spirit um, foretells you what God has said or something to that effect. The Spirit um, hear, does what he hears or something like that. He doesn't do it by himself. Right, right. The Spirit doesn't speak on his own. He speaks only what he hears. Yes. This is Christ in John chapter 16, I think. I'm not sure. Maybe 17 or 18. And it helps you foresee things or whatever. Yes. So how does the Spirit glorify God? By revealing his character and making us like him in character. This is what happens. And and it talked about an angel coming down. What angel do you think that text was referring to? If you haven't studied it out, I'll suggest you check Revelation 18. Revelation 18, which is the angel that comes to repeat the message of the three angels that was given once, but failed in its um, reception on earth to do its work, so that Revelation 18, the message goes again with the angel of Revelation 18. And what is the message of the three angels? Because we're talking about this idea of glory. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the springs of water. The everlasting good news. So this angel comes with the everlasting, the eternal good news. That's the gospel, the good news, which is what? First, identify it. What is the eternal good news? The good news that has always been good and the good news that will always be good and it's always good. What is that good news? Bingo, God is love. Do you understand most of Christianity? That is not the good news that's taken to the world. The good news that's taken to the world is Jesus died to pay my debt so I don't have to be tortured in hell. That is not the eternal good news. Would it be eternally good that you get to live forever in a kingdom if God is the kind of being Satan says he is? Do you want to live in that kind of kingdom for all eternity? This is not good. The good news is about God himself. That's what the allegations were. So in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, it says, We war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. So the good news, ultimately, this angel comes with, it has to have the right character of God or it cannot be fulfilling this message. So any messages I'm going to tell you coming with penal substitution theology cannot be presenting the third angel's message. Did you hear what I just said? It cannot be, because it presents a dictator God. And God is not a dictator. Second, if this is a worldwide message, and it says fear God, this means to be in awe of him, to be amazed, to be humbled by, to be adore him. It does not mean to be terrified by. Fear him, be amazed with him, and give him glory, meaning what was said in that other passage, that we reveal his character, we glorify him because we live the methods that he has created his universe to live upon. We look like him in character. We love one another as he has loved us. Because the hour of his judgment has come. The hour in which it is time for God to be judged rightly by people on earth. That's what this is about. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. Or God, may you be proved right when you are judged, depending on which translation you, you, you read. Why? Because he was the one lied about. He was the one lied about, and he has been going to great lengths to win us back to trust so that we can judge him correctly. And what happens when you present the the three angels from the penal substitutionary model? You then put God in the role of the great judge in the sky who's going through record books and, and making edicts and meeting out punishments against people, and there's no trust there. It misrepresents God. You cannot present this message until you come back to the right character, understanding his law's design law upon which life is built, and then you understand that this is really about who God is. How do we judge him? Because do you judge that you can trust him with your entire being? And if you do, you open the heart, the spirit takes all Christ has achieved and reproduces it in you, and you're saved. If you judge that he's not trustworthy, and you need someone to protect you from him, and you claim the blood of Jesus as your legal payment, so he will hold it up, hold up his blood, my blood father, my blood father, and he covers you with a robe of righteousness, so if God can't see you, you've never opened your heart to God, you haven't been renewed. You're, you're, you're living in fear, not in love. This is what the false gospel does. So the everlasting good news is about God. Oh, and then worship him who made the heaven. Again, coming back to designer worship, the creator worship, the builder worship, not the dictator views of God. All in the first angel. Powerful stuff. The second angel, by the way, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. What is that? What is that? It's a confused system. And why is it so confused? Why is it fallen? Because according to the Christian Encyclopedia, there are currently 34,000 Christian groups all claiming the Bible teach their view or support their view. And so if you're an outsider looking at Christianity, you have 34,000 voices arguing with each other over the scripture. Why? Why can it be this way? Because they've rejected design law. They've accepted imperial dictator law. And it becomes like our U.S. Congress. That's what it's like. Everybody's arguing their interpretation of how the law should be interpreted, how the rules should be, because there is no natural standard upon which we must test things to come up to the right answer. We have to come back into unity, which centralizes on God's character and his character of love and the way he's built things, and then confusion fades away. You know, that can't fit, that can't fit, that can't fit. It's wrong. Yes? What you're saying makes me think of an animal that is injured and it's going to die unless you can help it. But it's a wild animal, and it doesn't trust you. And so you're trying to coax this animal into trust so you can save its life, and yet it won't let you save its life because it's afraid of you and that you're going to hurt it. Yes. Well, I think it's a great analogy. What do you all think? Yeah. And giving, yes. giving glory to God is like going to an oncologist when you have cancer. And he, he diagnoses your cancer. He says, this is the treatment. It'll work if you take it. And you show, your part is to take it. And you do. Once you, and you do, and you're cured. How you give glory to the oncologist is by being cured. And then everybody says, oh, what happened to your cancer? I was cured, and Dr. So-and-so gave me the right you know, a cure, and I took it, and so you give glory to the oncologist. This is well said. Did everybody hear her? Everybody hear? This is well said. We get the privilege of being witnesses. We get no credit. No credit. But we get the privilege of being witnesses of the power of, the, of God and his methods to heal and restore. Absolutely well said. Yes. 
going back to her point, uh, we, you and I talked a while back about capture myopathy. I was hoping you were going to say that. Go for it. Where the, the wild animal sees the, uh, the veterinarian or the rescuer as an enemy and actually has a heart attack. The stress hormones get released in the wild animal that it, it destroys their heart. And carry this forward to the time of the end when the wicked who have settled their characters, have seared their consciences, are presented with all truth and holiness, and they have such a distorted view of the one, the only source of life in the universe, the only thing that could have saved them, what's going to happen to their hearts? Yeah, and I think that's what we talked about. They run and beg for the mountains to fall on them. They're telling you how they're perceiving and experiencing this. It's overwhelming dread and, and stress, yeah. Um, I want to, uh, we're going to jump ahead now because uh, we're getting short on time, and I want to talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, it talks about that, I think, in Tuesday's lesson. And how is it that we blaspheme or grieve the Holy Spirit? I'm going to give you, I've got two, two really good quotes I want to share with you. So I, I, want, to, I want to share these quotes. This first one is um, out of um, Councils to Teachers, page 357. It says, The Holy Spirit has been given us as an aid in the study of the Bible. Jesus promised when the Bible is made the study book, with earnest supplication for the Spirit's guidance and with full surrender of the heart to be sanctified through the truth, all that Christ has promised will be accomplished. The result of such Bible study will be well-balanced minds. The understanding will be quickened. The sensibilities aroused. The conscience will become sensitive. The sympathies and sentiments will be purified. A better moral atmosphere will be created. A new power to resist temptation will be imparted. Teachers and students will become active and earnest in their work for God. There is a disposition on the part of many teachers not to be thorough in giving religious instruction. They are satisfied with a half-hearted service themselves, serving the Lord only to escape the punishment of their sin. Did you hear that? This half-hearted, what's half-hearted service? Serving because you want to escape punishment. What kind of view of God do you have? And then she goes, their half-hearted service, half-heartedness affects their teaching. The experience that they do not desire for themselves, they are not anxious to see their pupils gain. That which has been given them in blessing has been cast aside as a dangerous element. The offered visits of the Holy Spirit are met with the words of Felix to Paul. Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call thee. Other blessings they desire, but that which God is more willing to give than a father is give, to give good gifts to his children, that which is offered abundantly according to the infinite fullness of God, and which if received would bring all of the blessings in its train, what word shall I use sufficiently to express what has been done with reference to it? The heavenly messenger has been repulsed by the determined will. Teachers have virtually said, thus far sh shall you go to my students and no farther. We need no enthusiasm in our schools, no excitement. We are much better satisfied to work with the students ourselves. Thus, despite has been done to God's gracious messenger, capital M. Are not the teachers in our schools in danger of blasphemy, of charging the Holy Spirit with being a deceiving power and leading into fanaticism? Why? Why were they in danger? Because we couldn't have any excitement in our school. No, what's the words here? Enthusiasm or excitement in the school. How about in the church? Much worse, right? When I was a kid growing up, you couldn't smile, you couldn't laugh, you couldn't scamper around as a kid. It, it had to be somber, joyless, expressionless, 
and we call it reverence. They're not clapping at special music either. And no clapping at special music because we have to be reverent, okay? And you extinguish the spirit. Is rejecting fanaticism, is rejecting as fanaticism the, the true spirit, blasphemy of the spirit? Yeah, it is. Why? What does it do to the mind to teach people that any excitement or enthusiasm is not from the Holy Spirit? How damaging to young people to stifle such positive energies. But how can you tell the difference between the the spirit of truth and false spirits of fanaticism? How can you tell the difference? Pretty straightforward. Does enthusiasm and excitement mean loss of self-control and disinhibition, acting out, flopping around on the floor like a fish? (laughs) It doesn't mean that. Think about John the Baptist, who was filled with the Spirit above all others other than Christ. He was very enthusiastic and passionate, but he never lost self-control. So as the Spirit comes, we get the fruits of the Spirit, and the last is self-governance and self-control. And this quote, we're really running out of time. I think you really want to hear this one. This is out of Faith I Live By, page 58. Conscience is the voice of God heard amid the conflict of human passion. When it is resisted, the Spirit of God is grieved. Men have the power to quench the Spirit of God. The power of choosing is left with them. They are allowed freedom of action. They may be obedient through the name and grace of our Redeemer, or they may be disobedient and realize the consequences. Notice, realize the consequences. The sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit does not lie in any sudden word or deed. It is the firm, determined resistance of truth and evidence. Oh, I'm going to say that again. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the firm, determined resistance of truth and evidence. A mind that's not willing to investigate truth and evidence. Wow, have we run up against that? It is not that God sends out a decree that man shall not be saved. He does not throw a darkness before the eyes which cannot be penetrated. But man at first resists the motion of the Spirit of God. And having once resisted, it is less difficult to do so a second time, less the third and far less the fourth. Then comes the harvest to be reaped from the seed of unbelief and resistance. Oh, what a harvest of sinful indulgences is preparing for the sickle. On the other hand... Every ray of light cherished will yield a harvest of light. Temptation once resisted will give power to more firmly resist the second time. Every new victory gained over self will smooth the way for higher and nobler triumphs. Every victory is a seed sown to eternal life. Get this next statement. God destroys no one. The sinner destroys himself by his own impenitence. No need No one need look upon the sin against the Holy Ghost as something mysterious and indefinable. The sin against the Holy Ghost is the sin of persistent refusal to respond to the invitation to repent. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to penetrate the darkness that encompassed the minds of men on earth, to reveal the truth about your character of love, to live out perfectly in humanity, how you've designed life to operate and live, to achieve a victory we could never achieve. We thank you for your promised spirit, and we pray now that you will bring us into unity of heart and mind as they were in that upper room so that we can be ready to receive your latter rain, Lord, that you can pour it upon us to enable us to go forth in power, to speak words of truth and love, to 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 throw back the the, the confusion and darkness that is holding so many people captive, that this world will be lighted with the final message of mercy, the truth about your character of love, and that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.